Welcome to Jerry and Marty Talk Footy, but not in ways you'd expect. The podcast from the world-famous soccer study school here at South Mims U. I'm Jerry, And I'm Marty. And Marty, I understand we're going to travel to the Emerald Isle in this episode. Yes, Jerry, we are. To Ireland, the land of Guinness, and a certain Daniel O'Donnell. Right, well, I know Guinness. I like the odd pint of that nourishing stout, but I don't know who Daniel O'Donnell is. Daniel O'Donnell is a rather wonderful Irish songsmith. He created melodies which have, in fact, shaped many lives. Well, they might have shaped yours, but they certainly haven't made an impact on mine. At least, not to my knowledge. You've led a sheltered life, Jerry. Or maybe I've got better taste in music than you have, Marty. I certainly have better taste in clothes. Those purple trousers do not go with a pink tie, Marty. Anyway, let's get to the point. Who is Daniel O'Donnell and why is he important? Daniel O'Donnell is a Gaelic giant, in terms of music at least. I love his ballads. They're, They're so evocative and they would make a great soundtrack for a film about the true subject of this podcast, who's also a Celtic giant, as well as a Catalonian colossus. Uh, I'm still none the wiser, Marty. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, that green shirt is starting to make me feel queasy. In some circles, my dress sense is revered, Jerry. The clash of colours is certainly making my eyes move in circles, Marty. But let's just get to the point. Certainly. Well, the true subject of this podcast is, in fact, Patrick O'Connell. And he, Jerry, is the man who saved Barcelona from extinction. The man without whom there might have been no Messi. The man who in fact helped to give us La Liga itself. Well, I'm still struggling here, Marty. Are we then in fact in Spain rather than in Ireland? We are in both, actually. This man, Patrick O'Connell, a native of Ireland, made an incredible impact in Spain. A fascinating character, as we'll see. But what's the connection with Barca? Well, in 1937, in the wake of the Spanish Civil War. He took over as manager of Barcelona. They were on the verge of going out of business and he took them on this money-spinning tour of Mexico, Cuba and the US and, in the process, raised enough to keep them in business. No O'Connell, no Barca. It's as simple as that. So that's money-making tours in those days. Well, nothing much has changed then, has it? You're, You're right, of course. But our boy Paddy is fascinating for a variety of reasons, as we'll see. My breath is baited. Well, Patrick started off as a player for Belfast Celtic. Ah, Belfast Celtic. Now that's a great story in itself. Of course, I forgot. That was your dissertation subject, wasn't it? Well, indeed it was. Now, this is romance for you. Romance of an epic Dr Zhivago proportions. A Catholic and a Republican fan base, probably the best supported club in Ireland, and one of the most successful too. Then, come 1949, it ends up pulling out of the Irish League altogether after its players and fans get attacked by a mob when it plays its main rivals, Linfield, which is a Protestant club traditionally. Interestingly, Belfast Celtic went on a tour of the US after they withdrew and famously was seen marching behind the Irish tricolour at St Patrick's Day parades. Keeping politics out of sport has always been a vexing proposition. Anyway, Jerry, you've set the scene rather nicely. Well, 
Patrick goes pretty swiftly from Belfast to the UK mainland, plays for Sheffield Wednesday, Hull City, Manchester United, then towards the end of his playing career for Dumbarton and Ashington before hanging up his boots. Ah, Ashington. Another plot within the plot. The home of the Charltons and of war Jackie, Jackie Milburn. And he, Jackie Milburn, of course, was the cousin of Bobby's and Jackie's mum. And war Jackie spent four of his playing years turning out for... Linfield. So there we are, Jerry, back in Belfast. Six degrees of separation with the Irish Sea in between, indeed. The circle of life. Now, don't get carried away, Marty. Are, are, are those digital cufflinks you're wearing? They're NFTs, but that's a subject for another podcast. So, now, I should say that Patrick was a pretty good player in his own right. A wing half. Well, a midfielder as far as our young students here at South Mims are concerned. And he played for Ireland and was a member of Ireland's 1914 home international team that won what was affectionately called the British Home Championship. Oh, and that's another insight um, our youthful students need to think about. There was, indeed, an annual mini-competition in which England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, well, after the Republic of Ireland was formed, in which they played each other, and usually England would win it. I remember those tournaments. The England-Scotland match was always a riot, sometimes literally. It certainly makes me feel old. But you are old, Marty. And and that reminds me, actually, um, I must have a word with you uh, once we're finished about your retirement. Uh, we're, we're planning a few restructuring moves in the faculty. What, what do you mean? Oh, nothing, nothing. I, I shouldn't have mentioned it. Forget I said anything. We'll talk later. Jerry, I, I'm, I'm getting worried. I'm still a young man, you know. Well, age is relative, Marty. I can assure you uh, that I and the academic board have every confidence in you. But, Jerry, that's what they say about managers. And then, well, you know what happens after the dreaded vote of confidence. Now, come on, carry on with the podcast. All right, but as long as I have your words. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, unquestionably. Full confidence. No plans to replace you. Definitely not. <clears throat> OK, well, if, if you're sure. Anyway, Patrick goes into management. But not any old management. Not for him, Doncaster, Tranmere or Scunthorpe. Oh no, for Patrick it was straight off to Spain. <laughs> Actually, in fact, the Basque country, it's all coming back to me, to Racing Santander. Nothing to do with the bank, by the way. The same city, of course, though. But uh, anyway, but before we go all Iberian, you've jogged my memory. Of course, it was your man, O'Connell, wasn't it, who, who was captain of that Man United team in the notorious Good Friday 1915 game against Liverpool, the famous betting scandal game that led to our beloved Tottenham Hotspur being relegated. Hmm, yes, well, I, I don't really want to dwell on that. We don't want the hero of our story to have feet of clay, do we? Well, on this point, I'm actually, yes, I do. It's all coming back to me now. It's the 2nd of April 1915 and the meeting of arch-rivals, you know, Man United and Liverpool, and it's at Old Trafford. United, led by O'Connell, need to win 2-0 to avoid relegation. Rumours abound, even before the kickoff, that the match has been fixed. Eyewitnesses talk of the two sets of players meeting up in Manchester pubs to decide on the outcome, and bookmakers are suddenly swamped with bets on a 2-0 victory for United. Yes, yeah, OK, but you're saying this with a bit too much venom for my liking. I never took you to be a bitter man, Jerry. Anyway, in case you haven't forgotten, Tottenham would have been back in the top flight in 1918 if it hadn't been for the dubious dealings of the boys from Woolwich Arsenal. Oh, right, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, the blame certainly lies there too. But anyway, now we're getting sidetracked. Uh, I, 
I was painting a picture, remember? Oh, okay. Well, look, back to you and your canvas. As I was saying, it's a strange atmosphere inside Old Trafford, and United go 1-0 up, and then they win a penalty. And who steps up to take it? None other than dear old Patrick O'Connell, the captain, of course. And what does he do? He kicks it so far wide it nearly hits the corner flag. And then he walks back up the pitch laughing. My theory on why he did that was that he knew United would obviously get their second goal whenever they wanted to. So he just thought he'd have a little bit of fun. Yes, well, I suppose it didn't really cover anyone in glory, did it? Did you know that some accounts describe a furious argument going on at half-time in the Liverpool dressing room as not all the players were in on the fix? In fact, Fred Pagnum, the Liverpool forward, nearly went and scored and apparently got terrible stick as he'd come close to ruining the whole bet. Well, I should point out that because the penalty miss was so egregious, the referee actually stopped the game for a while and he clearly thought something was seriously amiss. But in Patrick's defence, yeah, OK, he was a known gambler. But remember, he was found not guilty by the FA, even though three United and four Liverpool players got banned for life. You're looking a little downcast now, Marty. Come on, cheer up. Let's, let's go back to sunny Spain and the story. All right, then. Well, Patrick had his foibles, I'll grant you. I mean, for instance, even when he went off to Spain in the first place, he didn't tell anyone. Imagine, it's 1922, he suddenly disappears, abandons his wife and four children, leaving them in dire poverty. Well, they haven't got a clue what's happened until literally months later, envelopes full of Spanish pesetas start landing through their letterbox, postmarked Santander. He's not what you call a new man, is he? Well, a man of his time, I'd say. But, but yes, I'm, I'm, I must admit, I wouldn't hold him up as a domestic role model. But... What he did achieve, certainly on the, on the football field, was five regional titles while he was coach of, of Racing Santander. Then, given that success, come 1928, we find he's very much involved in the discussions that actually led to the creation of La Liga. He was actually one of the architects. And by reason of that, of course, Racing themselves are then invited to become one of the founder members of La Liga. Now, you've got to admit, that's a legacy. Well, you're certainly beginning to hook me now. He did make a very big mark out there. But then he moves on, doesn't he? I seem to recall him going to um, Real Oviedo, I think, for a couple of fallow years, um, where he did nothing much at all, am I right? Well, I like to think of that as a time of consolidation. A bit like Tottenham in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Yeah, and the middle 2010s and save for a brief sojourn in the sunny uplands under Pochettino, we're back in the doldrums, I think. That's why Spurs fans are all, by necessity, stoics, Jerry. Anyway, Patrick finds glory again when he moves to Seville. But not to glam boy Sevilla. No, it's off to Real Betis, a proud working-class club whose fans really disliked what they saw as the pretensions of the Spanish glamour clubs. So a sort of Seville version of San Paoli or Atletico Madrid? <laughs> that, that's, that's spot on, Jerry. On top of that, Betis at the time are in the second division when Patrick goes there, and he's truly a football revolutionary. It was 1931 when he arrived, and he was a sort of 1930s Arsene Wenger. He banned the players from smoking, he introduced a healthy diet, 
He even controlled how long they slept. In return, the team loved him. They called him Don Patricio. It reminds me of some of those other English and Scottish coaches we've talked about previously. Men like Jimmy Hogan, who really took their soccer philosophy across Europe and beyond. Yes, true pioneers. And yet it's strange, isn't it? So many of them are long forgotten here at home, though still very much remembered in Europe and indeed in South America. O'Connell managed to do a bit of a Leicester with Betis, didn't he? <laughs> yes, he, he gets them into the top division. And by 1935, the title itself is about to be theirs. Now, as fate would have it, the last game of the season is against his old club, Racing Santander. Betis are a point ahead of Real Madrid and need only a draw to secure the title. No, tell me they did it. Jerry, relax. Patrick was nothing if not wily. The night before the game, he visits the players and staff of racing and they tell him that the racing chairman absolutely loves Real Madrid and has offered them a massive bonus if they go out and beat Betis. Well, you can imagine, Patrick goes back and tells his players all this, really gets them in the zone. What do they do? They go out and win 5-0. And you know what? It's still the only time that Betis have landed the title. It's some story, but we still haven't got to Barcelona. Patience is a virtue. Before we get to that, I've got to say that Patrick was simply a tactical genius. I mean, he was years ahead of his time. He was, for instance, the pioneer of the offside trap. That Betis team conceded only 19 goals in 22 games. But, Jerry, wait no longer. Barca, here we come. Oh, I never thought we'd get here. It, it's all about build-up, you know. I imagine that O'Connell gets to Barcelona just as the winds of civil war are beginning to blow, am I right? Jerry, you are indeed. Yes, Patrick's appointed for season 35 to 36. He inherits a good team, admittedly, but Barca themselves are in a bit of a mess financially. Huh? Plus a change. <laughs> Wrong country, but right sentiment. As we said, the circle of life. But yes, things were in a very bad way. The political unrest had meant that crowds had dropped dramatically and there was little revenue coming in. How did they do on the pitch? Well, that first season, they reached the final of what we, we now call the Copa del Rey and they did win the Catalan Championship. Then war actually does break out, I assume. Of course, you're right. Patrick pops back to Ireland. Oh, and, and by this time, he's got a new wife. Now, not surprising, I suppose, given how he's treated the first Mrs. O.C. It looks like he never annulled his first marriage, neither did they divorce, and guess what? Both wives were called Ellen. <laughs> I'm still not feeling drawn to him on the, um, the human level. Point taken. But now, let me show you that he was a true hero, albeit a flawed one. I suppose in the Greek rather than the Irish tradition. Mm, that classical education sometimes stands you in good stead, Marty. Well, Jerry, certainly useful for knowing what club mottos mean, but that's for another day. Oh, uh, I do hope not. We'll see. Anyway, Patrick is there, sitting at home in Ireland, and gets a message that the club president, the man who actually recruited him, has been kidnapped and murdered by Franco's troops. The message goes on to say, it's too dangerous to return. But Patrick instead insists, I have a contract and it will be honoured. So, not so bad after all. Indeed. He goes back to Catalonia to find La Liga suspended and Barca now playing in a regional Mediterranean league. The club's now seen as an expression of Catalan power against Franco. And of course, this puts both the club and Patrick himself in the general sights. I can feel a movie coming on, you know, Barty. Yes, and well, it should be. Well, 
The Barca Stadium by now has been partially destroyed in the bombing of Barcelona and the general feeling is that the club itself won't survive. Then a Mexican businessman comes along and says look I'm offering the team an all expenses paid tour of Mexico. As it happens the Mexican government was a socialist one, obviously no friend of Franco's. So of course the offer is accepted and 16 players and four members of staff sail to Mexico. During the voyage Patrick himself personally is training the club's groundsman to be the physiotherapist. So the tour of Mexico that you mentioned right at the start was which was a great success that took in Cuba and two but didn't I read that they won four games out of six and raised $15,000? That's quite right Jerry. Then after Mexico and Cuba they head to New York where they play a further three matches against local teams representing the migrant communities in the city. Mind you, when they returned to Spain there was only Patrick and four players left. The rest had stayed in Mexico or had disembarked in France when the ship docked there. Understandably perhaps they were afraid of reprisals by Franco. What did they do with the money they'd collected? I hope O'Connell didn't go and gamble it all. Jerry, that's a particularly unworthy thought, even for you. No, they didn't. In fact, when they stopped in France, O'Connell and the club secretary went off to Paris, set up a secret bank account and then deposited into it the money they'd got from the tour. It was that that laid the foundations for everything that the club has become since. Well, it's an incredible story, Marty. I can see a theme emerging, O'Connell ultimately achieving salvation. Yes, in many ways I think he did. And what became of him afterwards? Well, he retired from management in 1958. By then he'd had further spells at Betis, at Sevilla and back at Racing Santander. He returned to England but was completely estranged from his family. He struggled to find a job. And Jerry, I think if we're honest, he struggled without football in his life. He turned to alcohol, he even turned to begging. Finally, he died of pneumonia in a street in St Pancras in London. Then he was simply buried in an unmarked pauper's grave. Do you know, Jerry, there was one mourner at his funeral, his own brother. His Spanish contacts had tried to help him, and Rail Betis had held a testimonial for him in 1954, but in reality, his financial difficulties continued. But Rail Betis have never forgotten O'Connell. In fact, they even tracked down and invited his family members, including his, his own grandson, when they celebrated the 75th anniversary of their title win. There's a bust of him at Betis's ground even today. Meanwhile, Barcelona inaugurated him into their Hall of Fame and a fund was established to give him a proper gravestone at his resting place at St Mary's Catholic Cemetery in Kensal Green, North London. That really would make a great movie. We could have ballads by Daniel O'Donnell. <clears throat> well, perhaps. Okay. Anyway, thanks, Marty. That's been a fascinating journey and it's hard not to be in awe of what Patrick O'Connell achieved. A worthy figure for the faculty's focus. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Jerry and Marty Talk Footy, but not in ways you'd expect. Check out the other Soccer Studies podcasts where you found this one and please come again when we have another strange but interesting story to tell you. And Marty, a quick visit to the fashion industry department might help you with your dress sense, I think. That's where I got these white robes with diamante inlays. Oh, God. OK. But it's time to go. Thank you and goodbye.